Parshas Re'ei. In this parsha, I'd like to really start and focus on one particular area. Um, it's going to be dealing with the area of Macholas Asuras Forbidden Foods, but a particular part of it, as we'll see as the Psukim uh, sort of open up in front of us. So we'll begin with Perik Yudbeiz in Pasuk Yudtes. Ki Yarchiv Hashem Elkechas Gvulcha, when Hashem will expand your borders, Dibalach, as Hashem spoke to you, Vermarta Ochlabasa. And you'll say, let me eat meat. Kisava nafshecha, as you will desire, as your body, as your nefesh will desire, lechol bosa, to eat meat. Bechol avas nafshecha, any desire of your nefesh, tochol bosa, you can eat meat. Now, this is the first time when Moshe Rabbeinu is telling the Klai that they are allowed to eat what's called bosa tava, bosa meat, just because they wish to. Up until this point, the basic food of the Jewish people in the Midbar was mun. Mun was laid at your doorstep every morning. It was the perfectly consumed food. It was completely absorbed into the body. There was no use, need for bathroom. And it tasted wonderfully like whatever you wanted. In addition to that, in the midbar, the Jewish people ate shlomim. There were certain carbonas that were brought. And when those carbonas were brought, that's the only time that they ate meat. Now, now Moshe Bain is telling Klaisrol that when you're going to go into Eretz you're going to have the ability to eat regular meat, basotava, which means meat that you wish to eat, not because it's a specific mitzvah, not because it's a korban, but just because you wish to. But it's very interesting to note that the Pasuk begins by saying that when Hashem expands your borders, that's when you'll eat meat. That's when it's permitted to eat meat. It seems to indicate from the Pasuk that it's only, not just when you're in Eretz Yisrael, but when you expand your borders, when you're doing well financially, when the Jewish nation is having a good situation, only then are you allowed to eat meat. And Rashi picks up on that and says as follows, Lam the Torah derech heretz. The Torah is teaching us derech heretz. The Torah is teaching us the right way to act. A man should not desire eating meat. Except when he has when he's wealthy, when he has more than enough, that's the only time he should desire meat. So the reason why the Torah says when your borders will expand, that's when you should desire meat, is to teach us that you shouldn't desire meat until you could afford it. Now, towards the end of the shir today, we'll focus on what this teaches us, and maybe we'll try to better understand it. But right now, I'd like to focus a little bit more on the issues right here, and that is the eating of meat. The next pasuk says, Ki when the place will be distant, when the place that Hashem places His name is distant from you, meaning when you're in Eretz Yisrael, you'll be distant from Yerushalayim, you will slaughter from your cows, and from your sheep, as Hashem gave you, as I have commanded you, and you shall eat them in your gates, in your cities, as much as you desire, any place that you desire. So basically, what the clients are all being told here is that you don't have to eat these meats in Yerushalayim. Basa Shlomim have certain rules to it. Basa from the Karbanas, even those that are allowed to be eaten by Jews have to be eaten specifically in Yerushalayim. But here we're talking about a different kind of meat. This is Basa Taiva. This is Basa that you want to eat because you wish to eat it. Once you're in Eretz once your borders are expanded, even if you're far away from Yerushalayim, you're allowed to eat this meat because this is not Basar Shlomim. Now, this Pasuk is a rather remarkable and powerful Pasuk because this is the Pasuk that is a source for Shechita, meaning we're not allowed to eat meat unless it's shechted. Where in the Torah do we have delineated specifically the laws of Shechita? And keep in mind that Shechita is a very complex process, a particular blade, a particular place, various issues. The Gemara tells us it's from this Pasuk, because look what Hashem is saying. You shall slaughter from your bakar, from your cows and your son, in the way that I commanded you. Just like I commanded you when it comes to Basa Shlomim, when it comes to Karbanas, just like you commanded there how to slaughter, so too you should slaughter here in the same way. Now, if you search through the entire Torah, and look for the way the Jewish people were commanded to slaughter Basar Shlomim, you won't find it. And if you search through the whole Torah and look for the way that the Jewish people were commanded to shech, to slaughter 
regular meat, you won't find it either. And this is the source. Hashem says you should slaughter, slaughter your regular meat, just like, like I commanded you to slaughter the busser in the Mishkan, the holy meats. And the Gemara says, Mikan, from here we see that this was given Torah Shebaal Peh. Meaning to say, Hashem commanded Moshe Rabbeinu in a very particular way to slaughter the karbonas that were to be brought. And Hashem says to Moshe, the same way I taught you to slaughter those karbonas, I want you to slaughter these as well. But if you'd like to know where Shechita is mentioned in the Torah, the answer is it isn't. It's only mentioned directly here where Hashem says to Moshe, you should slaughter these meats as I commanded you to slaughter those meats, kashet tivisicha, as I have commanded you. Now, this is a very, very important concept because here is but one example where trying to learn Torah Shebek Sa'avad, our Torah Shebek is foolhardy, meaning to say there is no way for you to know how to shecht a carbon shlomim, an animal you bring in Mizbeach from the Pesukim of the Torah. And if you try to learn it up and down, back and forth, you're not going to find the source. And therefore, you'll never know how to shecht the carbon shlomim, nor you'll know how to shecht a regular animal, because there is no source. Again, the Gemara answers that this is exactly one of the places where Hashem told Moshe exactly what he means, and this is exactly where Torah Shabbat is. It's more than essential. It's actually the the, the underpinning of everything in Torah Shabbat I once heard it said as a... Um, as a mushal, I'm not sure who is responsible for the mushal, but if you'd like to understand really what Torah Shabbat is, imagine for a minute you and I were scientists, and a great scientist came to town and gave a very complex lecture, scientific lecture, and we took notes. We took very complex scientific notes. Now, obviously, we extremely abbreviated and extremely concise in scientific notation. After that lecture, if you didn't hear the lecture and you weren't a scientist, and you try to decode what I wrote in my notes, you wouldn't understand it at all. If you were also a scientist, and if you had been at that lecture, then the notes would make imminent sense, just as stated, just as it is. So too over here, meaning the Klyasrol were at Har Sinai, and they received a huge segment of the Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu received the entire Torah, and Moshe Rabbeinu gave over in Torah Shabbat extraordinarily abbreviated and extremely codified words, if you knew the entire Torah Shabbat you would clearly see in the Torah Shabbat exactly where it refers to it. So, for instance, over here would be an example where, again, if you knew the entire Shechita and you knew how to shecht an animal by Kutchim, you would say, just like you learned over there, apply it over here. But again, from the Torah Shabbat itself, you wouldn't know it. And again, keep in mind the fact that Shechita is very complex. Different laws for an animal as for uh, for a bird, there are five things that passel shechita, and again, entire simonim in Shulchan Aruch, but it's all given over in the Torah Shabbat Peh, and then written down in a very, very abbreviated form in Torah Shabbat Shabbat Sab. Now, I also want to stop on one point here in the discussion of shechita, because there's a very significant Sefer Achinuch that tells us something very, very eye-opening. The Sefer Achinuch says as follows, Why is it that Hashem commanded us to shecht an animal in a particular way? He explains that one of the reasons is because when you use that knife that's very sharp and cut at the neck, the animal will have as little pain as possible. Hashem doesn't want animals to suffer too much, and therefore Hashem commanded us in the most humane, kindly form of murder, of killing the animal, use the knife in this way because it will cause the least amount of pain to an animal. Now, it's very interesting because on many societies they tried to outlaw shechita because it was considered uh, inhumane and in fact in Nazi Germany one of the moves was to first obligate the Jews to to stun the animal with an electric current and only once it was effectively dead then could you shecht it and, uh, and the Chachamim at the time were extremely against it um, even if it didn't stun it in the sense that it killed it but if it stunned it, it would be implying that Shechita wasn't kind and that there are more humane ways of doing things. And the Sri De'esh and the um, and Rav ha- and uh, the Arsameach were very against it. And for that reason, they forbid doing it first. And in fact, that was the uh, 
If you couldn't do shechita without the uh, electric current first, they wouldn't allow it to do it. The point is that the Torah, Hashem is the creator of the entire world, and Hashem knows the most kindly way. And again, the reason why we're commanded, one of the reasons why we're commanded in shechita in this way is because it's the most kindly way it causes the least tsar to an animal. Now, that being said, I'd like to ask an obvious question. If the Torah is concerned for the pain of the animal, isn't there a much better way to make sure the animal doesn't feel pain? Forbid eating meat. I mean, if the Torah is really concerned that animals shouldn't have pain, and that is apparently an ethical and moral obligation, so there's a very simple way to make sure animals don't have pain. Make it forbidden to eat meat, and you won't have animals having pain. So what's the answer to this question? And the Sefer Chinuch explains to us very clearly what the answer is. The Torah gave us animals to eat because this pivotal point of all of creation, the reason for all of creation, is Adam. Everything in creation was put there for man's use, animals included. And the Torah permits us to eat animals. Why? Because Hashem created animals for use, man's use, to use them as labor in the field, and to eat them, that's part of man's use of animals, and it's 100% correct and fine. Yet, the Torah warns us to be careful not to cause the animal too much undue suffering. But here's the point. It's not because the Torah is concerned about the animal, and it's not because animal rights are significant from a Torah perspective. The problem is you, Adam, if you act in a cruel way to the animal, you're going to damage you. You see, the animals don't matter. The animals were created for man's use. The animals serve a very important purpose. If you use it on your Shabbos table, if you eat from it, it's proper, good, and holy. But nevertheless, when you slaughter the animal, you should be careful. Why? Because if you're not careful in the way you're doing doing it, you're going to ruin your midos. You're going to make yourself callous. The point being, the Torah is not concerned for the animal's pain. You're right. If the Torah were concerned for the animal's pain, you wouldn't be allowed to wear leather shoes or leather belts. You wouldn't be allowed to shoot an animal. But the Torah doesn't forbid that at all. Animals have a particular purpose, and using them for that purpose is right, good, and proper. The Torah's concern is that when you use the animals in that way, don't act in a cruel way. Why? Because what you're going to be doing is damaging yourself, and that ultimately is the point. And the reason I stress this is because in our modern civilization, they have various organizations. There's PETA, people for the ethical treatment of animals, etc., who so misunderstand the difference between a man and a human. And believe me, it's not that they elevate animals to human stature. They lower humans to animal stature. And that is attitude for all occupants of the same planet. What right does one animal have to eat another? The bottom line is that's certainly not a Torah concept. The concept of Tsar Balechayim, which according to many Rishonim is an Issa Doraisa, has nothing to do with the animal. It has to do with man, that if I act in a way that's cruel, I'm going to damage me. The Torah is not concerned for the animal's pain. The Torah is concerned, again, for the human. But let's, con- let's continue. So after Shechting, the Torah has another number of prohibitions. As you'll eat the various wild animals, the isle and the tzvi, the deer and the ram, so too shall you eat this bucker, and so and so too should you eat your cows and sheep. You could eat this whether you're a tame with your tar, meaning unlike unlike the holy carbonus that you eat, we have to be tar. These animals you could eat whether you're tahar or tame, even if you're a tame mace, you're still allowed to eat them because it's a totally different category. It's not in the category of shlamim. Rock, but chazak levilti adam. Strengthen yourself that you should not eat the blood. Ki adam hu nefesh, because the blood is the nefesh. The blood is the soul. And don't eat the soul, don't eat the nefesh with the meat. And don't eat it. You should spill it on the ground like water. Don't eat it, don't eat this blood. So it'll be good for you. And for your children after you. Because you'll do the straight in the eyes of Hashem. Now in these psukim, we're warned against the prohibition of eating blood. It's not drinking blood, it's eating blood. And in fact, the sheer blood is a kazayas, which is normally the, the measurement that you use for solid objects. It's not really considered a liquid for these halachas. But it, and again, here we're warned against the, uh, this is the prohibition 
of eating blood. Now, it's very interesting to note that there are seven times in the Torah that the Torah warns us against eating blood. And Rashi brings down two shittas. The second shita in this is that we don't need seven warnings not to eat blood, meaning to say, if I were to pour a tall, clear glass of cow's blood and present it to you, I doubt you would have a great temptation to drink it. Blood is not particularly appealing. Blood does not, I mean, I've never drunk it, but I don't believe that it has any great appeal. I don't believe it has any great taste. And certainly the second sheet in Rashi is that there is no great taiva for blood. Why is it then that the Torah warns us seven times not to eat blood? Lamdacha to teach us, how much you have to strengthen yourself in mitzvahs. If blood, which is simple to guard yourself against because you don't even desire it, no man has a desire for it, still the Torah has to warn us in many times not to eat it. Surely so much more for regular mitzvahs. Meaning this Rashi is teaching us a principle for kola tarakula. You're correct. There is no temptation and there is no desire amongst regular normal people to eat blood. Why then does the Torah tell us again and again and again, don't eat blood, don't eat blood, don't eat blood? This teaches you something that you would otherwise not be aware of. And that is that even mitzvahs which are simple to keep are not simple at all. Because what you're not taking into account is the fact that there are tremendous forces that will attempt to get you to violate the Torah. We, from a Western civilization standpoint, we are very sophisticated and we are very aware of things that even though our eyes don't see, we're fully cognizant and aware of them. We pick up cell phones which beam a microwave three miles up in the sky to a satellite. That satellite connects to another satellite. And in but a heartbeat, we're speaking to someone 6,000 miles away. I don't see the connection. I don't see the microwaves, but I'm fully aware of them. Electricity runs through my walls that power my equipment. I don't see it. We're very, very comfortable dealing with things that the naked eye, that the human eye doesn't see. However, we, from a Western civilization standpoint, are also very wary of things that Chazal tell us about that we sort of, mm, I don't really know. Chazal tell us that on the job 24-7 is a malach, is called the Sutton. Hashem created him for one reason, and that is to keep an even playing field. Meaning to say, the human being always has to be in a situation where he has free will, where it's as easy for him to grow and accomplish as it is for him to mess up. And the Sutton's job is to always keep an even playing field. And the more you grow in learning and dominating, the more holy you become, the more power the Sutton is allowed, the more he's allowed to tempt you. No bigger proof to this, says Rashi, than this very mitzvah. Why does the Torah have to tell us seven times, don't eat blood, don't eat blood, don't eat blood? You anyway don't want to eat the blood. The answer is you don't want to eat the blood until you're told not to eat it. <clears throat> Once you're told not to eat it, then all of a sudden you're going to have a huge desire to eat it. Why? Because that's the force of the Sutton, <clears throat> that's a koach and the Yitzhara. And <clears throat> the greater you are, the more <clears throat> desire you have, not desire physically, but the more the Sutton is allowed control. And this is exactly a manifestation of it. And the minute you're commanded not to do something, it becomes very difficult not to do it. Now, the question which the Rishonim grapple with is, why is it, though, that the Torah forbids us from eating blood? Okay, what's wrong with blood? Now, the Pesukim is very clear. The blood is the nefesh. Now, the Cholos of Olves explains to us very, in very great detail that every animal in the animal kingdom has a nefesh. A nefesh is a live, vibrant part of that animal. It's not a neshama. An animal is not man. But there is a live part to that animal. It's called a nefesh. In the animal kingdom, it's a nefesh abahami. That is the part of the animal that desires things. That is the live part of the animal. That's the life force of the dog, the cow, the monkey, the kangaroo. Each animal has been programmed with all of the instincts and desire to keep it alive. The animal naturally wishes to eat, naturally knows when to rest, naturally desires to procreate. Hashem, in, just, Hashem invested into the Nefesh Abahami all of the desires and all of the needs to keep that animal alive as well as the entire species. 
Now, where is that nefesh? If you have a dog and the dog sleeps at night, it's clearly different when it's asleep than when it's awake. And when a dog is dead, it's also clearly very distinct than when it's alive. But what is the difference? And this, again, is one of those things that, from again, from a scientific perspective, from Western civilization's wisdom, is extremely difficult to define and understand. Because, you see, physical science is extremely calibrated and extremely exact and well-equipped to measure physical manifestations. But here is one of the great secrets of life. A nefesh is not physical. A neshama isn't physical. And these are things that science cannot measure. One of the ironies of life is that the, in the 20th century, the 21st century, one of the greatest medical ethical issues is how do you define death? Is it when the patient stops breathing? Is it when the brain wave stops? How do you define death? Now, if you think about it, there should be a very, very easy way to define death, and no one should wonder. You see, I, the one inside, am the neshama, the nefesh. I'm the full, live, vibrant person. When my body's put in the ground, I separate. So if you'd like to know when I'm alive, it's very simple. When I'm in the body, I'm alive. When I've left the body, I'm dead. So why is it so hard to define death? All you have to do is measure when I am attached to the body, I'm alive. When, I've severed, when I'm severed from that tie, when I'm no longer tied to the body, <clears throat> obviously I'm dead. So what, what's hard to measure? But here's the point. You see, I do not exist in a physical world. If you try to weigh I, if you try to measure I, if you put I into a beaker and try to add blue dye and see what color it turns, guess what? It won't turn color. You see, the I whom thinking, the I whom speaking to you, am not physical. Now, <clears throat> I believe I exist. I've woken up every day of my life, and I, I'm here right now, so I'm probably pretty convinced of the fact that I exist. But from a physical perspective, <clears throat> from a scientific perspective, I don't exist because I can't be measured, <clears throat> I can't be weighed, I can't be defined. And this is one of those aha moments. When you get this, you understand so much more about life and certainly about mitzvahs and Torah and why we're here. And the reason why I cannot be measured from a physical perspective is because I am not physical. I am utterly and completely spiritual. My body is very physical. My body is the housing. I wear this coat for a few short years. When I'm done my job on this planet, the body's put in the ground and I separate. But I... I'm the guy inside. I'm the one who thinks. I'm the one who remembers. I'm the one who tells my arms and legs to move. But at the end of the day, I am not physical. I am a neshama, a nefesh, a spiritual entity. Now, again, if you think about it, it's obvious. It's so clear, but it's not simple at all. And this is one of those aha moments when you really, really get it and you understand so much about life. You ever have someone say to you, oh, I don't know, it was Shabbos, and I, I felt the Kedusha. It was, it was a little strange because it was like so unnatural. Or, or maybe it was Rosh Hashanah, I was dominating. I, I felt Hashem's presence, and it, it, was, it was great, but it was like so, so different. The biggest mistake that we make is we think that we are physical beings, and every once in a while we have a spiritual experience like Rosh Hashanah or Shabbos. And we just feel something different. That is the largest mistake we probably could ever make because I am not a physical being every once in a while having a spiritual experience. I am a spiritual entity temporarily having a physical experience. I'm put into this body for a few short years with a job to do, but I, the guy inside, am not physical. I'm completely, utterly ruchni. I am completely spiritual. Now, as I am spiritual... So, too, is the nefesh of a dog, of an orangutan, and a kangaroo of a baboon. There is a live, vibrant part to them that won't register on the Geiger counter, will not be measured by ounces or pounds. It doesn't exist in a physical world. Now, it's, it seems to sure be there because a lion that's dead is vastly different than a lion that's alive. And if you're not sure, just take a walk in the Sahara, take a walk, I'm sorry, in the Serengeti, and you'll quickly see that there's a very real difference. But you see, here's the point. The nefesh of the lion is a spiritual entity. 
It's there. It's clearly present. When it's asleep, it's somewhat removed. When it's dead, it's completely removed. But the reason why Western civilization has such difficulty understanding it is because, again, if it's not physical, if I can't bang my head against it, it doesn't exist. And it's a little bit of an eye-opener because we do deal with things that aren't so readily apparent to our eyes and yet we're comfortable with it. And another step is just to recognize as I can get comfortable with microwaves that my eyes don't see, electricity that my eyes don't see, I can begin to relate to things of the nefesh even though my eye doesn't see it. It's, they're far more real than anything physical, and they're very much there. In any case, the, most of the Rishonim explain that that's exactly what the Pasuk is saying here. Do not eat blood. Why? Ki adam hua nefesh. The nefesh is actually contained in the dam. And the Ramban in Vayikra, by the warnings of blood over there, is very clear that when you ingest the blood, what you're doing is you're ingesting the nefesh of the animal to within with you. Meaning to say there's a part of that animal that gets incorporated in you. If you eat the animal's meat, that's not the nefesh. You'll eat the animal's meat. Your body will break down the various amino acids and recreate the protein, and you'll be able to sustain yourself and benefit from the eating. If you ingest the blood, you're going to be taking a part of the nefesh of that animal, and you're going to be, against your will, having some of the nefesh of Bahamid put within you. Meaning to say, as the Rishonim explained to us, we don't eat predators. None of the animals that are kosher are predators. A predatory animal has a very aggressive nature. It eats by killing. If you would even eat the meat of that, there's so much, so to speak, aggression in it, it would affect you. But regardless of the type of way that the animal earns its keep, if you drink the blood and you're ingesting part of the nefesh of Bahami, part of an animal into you, and you will be more behemoth-like. Now, what does that mean? If you're, you drink cow's milk, meat, I'm sorry, cow's blood, does that mean you're going to want to start chomping on grass? No. But what it means is you're going to be much more Nefesh Bahami, the animal soul within you will become strengthened, will become stronger. Yunushama will have a more difficult time coming to the fore. You see, in the balance between Nishama and Nefesh Bahami that I'm ever concerned with that always plagues me, the more that I exercise my Nishama, the more that it comes to the fore, the more I'm able to experience Hashem's presence, the more I value mitzvahs, the more I understand why I'm here. The more I exercise my nefesh Bahami, the more I give into my animal soul's needs and cravings, the stronger it becomes. There are certain activities that are particularly strengthening to the nefesh Bahami. Drinking blood is one of them because there you're actually taking the nefesh of an animal and putting it into within you, and it will make it harder for you to learn, harder for you to daven, harder for you to experience Hashem. And the Rishonim explained that that is the reason why the Torah forbids us from eating um, blood, exactly as the Pasuk says, Ki adam hua nefesh, lo socha nefesh don't eat the nefesh with the basar. Now, if you look in the Rishonim, this is very much accepted, the Ramban, Ben Rechai, Sefer Achinuch. There's another reason that's brought in the Rishonim, and I don't believe it's contradictory to this first one, I believe it's an addition to that. The Sforno explains that in the olden days, people were much aware of how to connect to, how to speak to Shadim. Now, there are different spiritual forces in existence. There are sometimes people who were live human beings who died and are not allowed into Gan Eden or into Gehenna. They kind of hover, they stay in limbo. There are different forces of Malachim. Shadim are a type of spiritual entity which have a das, they have a will, a will they have a rotson, and they have certain control over certain things. Apparently, because they're able to go to Shemayim, they're able to see the future. Shaul HaMelech consulted with that woman who, uh, through Shadim and etc., was able to see the future. Basically, there is such an entity. Whether modern man is aware of it or not, whether modern man knows how to tap into it or not, the Suno explains that what the ancient people would do is they would gather together a lot of blood. And apparently, I guess because the nefesh of the animal is there, the Shadim somehow are attracted to it. And that was a way that would make it easier for you to communicate with Shadim and etc. And again, explains the, uh, the Surah that this is another reason why blood is forbidden. In any case, the primary reason why 
blood is forbidden is, as he said, that it that it's ingesting the nefesh of the animal into within you. Now, when the Torah forbids us from eating blood, there are actually two types of blood flow that it's forbidden. In Vayikra, the Torah is very clear that if you eat blood, you have kores. And here in Dvarim, the Torah says that if you eat blood, it's just a losase. And the Rishonim, the Sefer Chinuch, particularly explains the distinction. He explains that when the animal is shechted, when you actually cut the, the, the vein, what happens then is the blood flows out. That is the dam of the nefesh. With that blood, the nefesh really exits the animal. That's the blood that you're forbidden to eat. If you eat that, it's chayv kares. The blood we're talking about over here is the blood in the animal after it died. If there's blood in the animal after it died, in the hind quarters, front quarter, wherever it may be, if you if that blood is separated after, that's a blood that's only a losasein. Now, the Sefer Achinach explains this with the following concept. He says that there's an additional level of cruelty which is similar to Aver Menachai. One of the prohibitions of the Torah that's considered a major prohibition is it's forbidden to eat part of an animal while that animal is still alive. For instance, let's say you had a sheep and you were to cut off the leg of the sheep. There's a specific Torah of Avim and Achai, not eating uh, the sheep uh, leg of the sheep while the animal itself is still alive. Now, the Sefer Chinuch explains the reason behind it. He explains that it's extreme cruelty, meaning there's a level of achzorius of cruelty and there's a certain pleasure that comes from acting in a very barbaric, cruel way. Most of us may not have this sort of desire, and we may not be trained in this pleasure, and we may not appreciate it, but apparently there is a type of pleasure, or at least a type of deviant uh, desire, or deviant pleasure that one gets from acting in this way. Meaning to say, if there's an animal that's alive, and while it's alive, I'm eating its very flesh, there's a level of barbarism, a level of cruelty, a level of just pure achzorius that one is doing, and that's why the Torah forbids it. Now, Eva Menachai is a prohibition for Jews and for Goyim. Apparently, it is a very, it's a major prohibition because, again, it, it's included in the seven mitzvahs B'nai Noach. There are only seven mitzvahs that a Gentile is obligated to keep. The first one is Eva Menachai. So clearly, it is a big deal. It's considered a, a major issue. And it's not based on, you know, being a holy Jew, just even a regular person uh, is forbidden from doing it because apparently it's a level of cruelty and barbarism that's, that will destroy a person's soul and, and will damage him. The Sefer Chinuch explains that that as well is the reason why the Torah has a mitzvah called Kisri Adam, meaning blood, if you shecht certain animals, you have to cover the blood. Now, it's not a bucker, not a cow, but if you shecht a wild animal, let's say a deer, or if you shech the bird, a uh, a chicken, you're obligated to cover the blood. And again, the Sefer Chinuch explains the reason for it, because if we were to eat the meat while the blood, while the nefesh is on the ground, it would also be cruel. There would be a level of barbarism, like the nefesh is still there. The animal just died. Its, it's, it's nefesh is sort of hanging around still, and in front of it, you're eating its very flesh. That also is a level of cruelty. Hence, we're obligated in the midst of Kisei Adam, Again, the mitzvah of covering the blood is only by a, um, by a wild animal, by a deer, etc., venison, or by birds. It's not by a, any animal that's brought, brought as a, normally as a carbon. And Sefer Chinuch explains the reason for that, because since any animal is brought as a carbon, the blood is part of the avoda. There, the Torah obviously cannot command you to cover the blood. Therefore, the Torah makes a blanket statement, any animal that's normally brought as a carbon does not require kisei adam, does not require covering. But if an animal isn't normally brought as a carbon, for instance, again, a deer or a, a, a chicken, etc., those animals would require kisei adam. Again, the same concept being that it's cruelty. Now, I just want to quickly go through two different issues with blood. Again, we mentioned that the blood that comes out initially from the, from the shkit itself, that's kares. Any blood afterwards is chayev uh, regular losase. Now, here's a very interesting halacha that, unless you learned your day, you may not be aware of. If I have a section of meat, let's assume the butcher cut for me a section of meat, I could eat that meat raw, 
with the blood contained in it. The blood that's <clears throat> contained within the animal has no isodam. The problem <clears throat> is, though, that if I take that slab of meat <clears throat> and put it in my pot, as soon as I start cooking it, the blood that's contained within the meat is going to come out, and that is considered dam. You see, dam, blood that's absorbed into the meat, isn't a problem. It's not blood. It's considered part of the meat, and I could eat it. <clears throat> the problem is that once it's separated from the meat, then it's considered dam, then it gets the status of dam, and then it becomes forbidden. Well, the problem is if I put this meat into my pot, I start cooking it, the blood is going to come out, and then the blood is going to get cooked back into the meat. When it was in the meat, it was fine. It was part of the meat. Once it's separated, it now has the isser. It's now dam. It's something separate from the meat. It's now usser. And when it's cooked back into the meat, now that meat is cooked with forbidden food with dam in it, and therefore I wouldn't be able to eat the meat. Therefore, Chazal obligated us to, to make sure that any meat that we eat has the dam removed. Now, again, if you have a particular craving to eat raw meat, you could eat it with the blood in it um, because, again, at, at that point it's still meat. But assuming you cook your meat, you have to make sure that the blood comes out of the meat. Now, how do you make sure the blood comes out of the meat? So the two basic systems that Chazal um, formulated for us to do this. The first is salting. When the animal is shechted, after all the blood flows out, then the animal is is cut into pieces, and, and the animal is covered with a covering of salt. Salt has an absorbent property to it. The salt draws the blood out. Because the salt draws the blood out, as long as you cover the entire surface of the meat and you let the salt stand there long enough, it will absorb out all of the blood. And any liquid that's left in the meat afterwards is considered not blood. It's considered just uh, just fluid of the of the meat, and it's not blood. So, for instance, if you buy a steak and you see that there's when you cut it open, there's some red stuff. It looks like blood. Oh, my goodness, it's trafe. It's not a problem. Assuming that it was salted properly, assuming that the butcher is a Shomer Torah Mitzvah, which, again, certainly if it has a good hexer uh, on it, you have every right to assume, and then the assumption is that that meat was covered with a full layer of salt, left for the right amount of time. The salt absorbs all the blood away from it. Anything left in the meat afterwards is just liquid that's not considered blood. It is liquid and, it's, and may have a color of red, but it's not blood. And it's not a problem. In any case, the first way and the most common way to get rid of blood is by salting. And the second is broiling. There are certain organs, the liver, for instance, that is so permeated with blood that salting won't work on it. And Chazal said the only way to get rid of blood there is by roasting it, by actually taking the meat and putting it over a fire and allowing the flames to draw out. It basically drips down, the, the, the blood drips out straight out into the flame or into the uh, underneath, and the point is that the heat of broiling it takes out the uh, takes out the blood. Broiling works as better than salt. It works for all organs. Again, it's for specific organs only. Broiling will be good enough. But these are the two methods to get rid of the the dam. And again, once a process has been done, then we have every right to assume that all of the blood has been removed. And again, this is the iser of achilas dam. Again, it's forbidden. It's forbidden seven times, and the primary reason is because the Torah is warning us against an activity that apparently would damage us, that would make my nefesh and Bahami stronger, and therefore the Torah forbids us from doing it because I would be ingesting the nefesh of that animal into me. Now, I'd like to go back to what we began with, and that is a very interesting observation about how the Torah permits us to eat meat. The Torah says, <laughs> When Hashem will broaden your borders, when Hashem will expand your borders, and then you'll say, I wish to eat meat, and you're allowed to eat it. Rashi makes an observation. It seems clear that it's only when Hashem expands your borders, only when you're doing well, that that's when you're allowed to desire eating meat. In fact, Rashi says that's correct. The Torah is teaching us the Torah is teaching us the correct way to act. A man shouldn't desire eating meat, except when he has plenty. The only time you should desire meat is when you have enough when you're well off. When you could afford it, that's when you should desire meat. But if you can't afford it, then you shouldn't desire meat. Only when you're able to financially afford it, that's when you should desire meat. Now, this Rashi is very difficult to understand. Number one, what does it mean I should only desire it when I could afford it? Desire is desire is desire is desire. Let's say I'm poor. 
I barely could afford vegetables. And I, uh, just putting bread on the table is, is all I could do. What am I going to do? I, I love meat. I want meat. I desire meat. What do you mean that I shouldn't desire meat unless I could afford it? First of all, who can control such a thing like desire? And second of all, why does the Torah care? Torah forbids me to eat meat if I can't afford it. Torah should forbid me from stealing to eat meat that I can't afford. Then I understand. But why would the Torah say I shouldn't desire meat if I can't afford it? What's wrong with desire if you, if you can't fulfill the desire? What's wrong with that? So I believe that this Rashi is eye-opening and powerful in what it teaches us. Number one, there are certain tastes that a person acquires and develops. For instance, ask a five- or six-year-old if they'd like some beer. You know, Shabbos uh, at the Suda, oftentimes we'll have beer. And when my kids were little, I'd offer them, you know, if they'd ask me, can I have some beer? I'll be sure, here, try it. They wouldn't ask a second time. Why? Because little kids don't like the taste of beer. Beer is an acquired taste. You don't instinctively, naturally desire beer. You drink it, you do it time after time. Eventually, you acquire a taste for it. Eventually, you could get to a point where you really enjoy it and you get a sophisticated palate. You could distinguish between types of ales and hops, etc. Very nice, but it's an acquired taste. So to fine red wine, there was a fellow who became a gare, and he told me, this was maybe 20 years ago, at the time when he was being Maguire, there were no fine kosher wines. And he said to me as follows, he was a wine connoisseur, and for him it was a major sign. He very much wanted to be Jewish, he very much appreciated what it would offer to him, but part of the challenge for him was that it meant he'd have to give up fine red wines, and it was an assignment. He decided anyway to do it, but it was a difficult assignment. When he explained that to me, I said to myself, wow, I have to learn what this is. If there's such a desire for it, that literally was like a, a, an assignment for him, and I tried to acquire a taste for dry red wine. I have to some extent, I, I do appreciate a wine now, but there are definitely people who appreciate it far more than I do. But again, that's an example of an acquired taste. If you ask somebody the first time they smoked a cigarette, how much pleasure did they have from it? I guarantee not much at all. And there are certain tastes that you acquire. As there are tastes that you can acquire, so too there are desires that are acquired. And what we don't recognize is that when we allow ourselves to desire something, we're building that desire, we're increasing the desire. Now, if it's beer or wine, well, it doesn't really matter, provided you control it. But Torah is teaching us that you have control over whether you desire meat or not. If you can't afford it, you should not allow yourself to desire it. And if you don't allow yourself to desire it, it won't be a part of you. And you'll, if you originally did eat it, you'll learn to no longer desire it. And if you never ate it, you won't learn to then desire it because you can shape and mold that which you desire. It's not always as readily malleable as maybe a muscle, but desires that we have are certainly shapeable, moldable, and etc. So in terms of the Torah forbidding me or telling me I shouldn't desire until I could afford it, I guess we've answered how it's possible that the Torah could obligate me in it because, again, it's a major part of the Torah teaching us to control our desires, and if I'm not supposed to desire it, I shouldn't. But the second question we didn't answer. The second question was, so what's wrong? Meaning to say, let's assume I can't afford it and I desire meat. Tell me don't steal meat. Tell me don't eat meat if you can't afford it. But what's wrong with desiring it? And I believe the Torah is teaching us exactly what Rashi says, Derech Eretz. You see, Hashem created the human for a particular purpose, and that's for us to grow and accomplish and gain our portion in the world to come. But in this world, Hashem wants us to be happy. And every mitzvah in the Torah obviously has its purpose in terms of making me a greater person, but is also part of being a happy person in this world. When the Torah teaches us not to desire things you can't afford, it's because when you desire something that you can't fulfill that desire, you're going to be unhappy. There's going to be unrest. I want it, I can't have it. I want it, I can't have it. I need I want it, but I can't. And the human will not be satisfied. Hashem wants a person to be satisfied and happy. If you could afford it and you can fulfill that desire, nothing wrong with it. If you can't afford it, and therefore you're not going to be able to fulfill that desire, the Torah is telling us you shouldn't desire it. Why? Because Hashem doesn't want you in a state of unhappiness where you desire something that you cannot have. 
And I believe that this is a powerful, powerful lesson for Western civilization in the 21st century. We live in the world of consumerism. Consumerism has a shorish, has a root. The root is consumer. We think of a consumer as one who goes to the store to buy. But the word consume means to gobble up, as in to consume, as in to eat. Objects, property, things in our society are consumables. What that means is it has a lifespan, has a limited amount of time, and the job of manufacturing and the job of media is to teach us to wish to consume it and get rid of it. And the more that they can train us to wish, desire, purchase, and then burn through it, the more they make and the more the society as a whole churns out. Consumerism is something that's so pervasive and so powerful that we're not even aware of it. If you pay attention to the amount of ads, the bigger and the better, and you need this and you should have this and this and that, thank God we live in a time of extraordinary ashiras. But if you just look at the amount of products and the amount of things that are advertised and they're all there, it sounds great and it is wonderful, but it also trains us in a very interesting Matthias. And that Matthias is I always need new and better I just got a car last year, but it's already last year's model. You know what I mean? It's, it's already outdated. Oh, yes, I got this suit, but this suit was from two years ago, and, and it's no longer quite, you know, as fashionable. And if you're not sure I'm right, ask women if they would dare show up in shul with an uh, outfit they bought two years, three years, four years ago. We are trained in consuming, buying and using up and buying and using up and buying and using up. Now, you may say, so what's wrong with that? Baruch we have money. Well, what's wrong with that is a number of things. The first thing that this Rashi is teaching us is you are destined to be unhappy. You see, no matter how much money you have, you can't possibly buy everything that's out there. The average Walmart has 75,000 products. You can't possibly fill enough carts with all of the products. And no matter how many T-shirts you have, there are other T-shirts. No matter how many suits, there are other suits, other cards, other things. So if you're constantly be, being bombarded with the message of this bigger and better and get this and have this and you need this and you should have this, well, guess what? You will never be happy. You will never be satisfied because if you have a car and it's a nicer car, guess what? Mine's garbage and trash and ugh, the whole thing's worthless. And if I have a house, it's a beautiful house, a wonderful house, but there's a better house and a nicer house, and better carpeting, and better drapes, and better lighting. And don't forget, you don't have a pool. If you have a pool, you don't have the pool cover. If you have a pool cover, you don't. And you'll see that there's a never-ending stream of messages and things that we're being bombarded with, and it's a guaranteed way to be unhappy. Now, there are a number of levels to this. Number one, we're an Am Kodesh, we're a holy nation. And materialism is the opposite of holiness. Just as a Chiddush, it may not be a Chiddush, but it probably is because many people believe this. You ever hear the expression, the best of both worlds? Listen, he's a solid, solid balabas. He learns in the morning and he, he davens like a mansion. He gives plenty of stuck and he, and he lives beautifully. Look at that mansion he lives in. He has the best of both worlds. Well, I'd like to know that you cannot have the best of both worlds. You make a choice in life. Either you're Ben Olam Haba or you're Ben Olam Hazeh. Either your priorities are Torah and mitzvahs growing and accomplishing, or your priorities are materialism. But the two are competing 100%, vying for your attention, vying for your priorities, and you cannot live a super materialistic life and say that you're a spiritual being because what happens is you get absorbed into materialism, it becomes more important to you, more of a focus, and even if you don't have to work long and hard hours, which all of us have to do to keep up the level of materialism, even if you were born super wealthy, just the involvement in it, just the focus and amount of attention you spend on it makes you very materialistic, makes you very unspiritual. So number one, living in a consumer generation is the antithesis of being an Am Kodesh, being a holy nation. Unfortunately, it seeps into our world and we live uh, very, very high lifestyles. I'd like to down the kapschus, and I'd like to explain to you why it is that we unfortunately succumb to this. You see, the truth is that the Jewish nation is supposed to be of a higher caliber. We are the Am Kodesh, we're the Am Segula, Hashem's chosen nation, and within the Jew is a knowledge that we're supposed to be better, we're supposed to be above. Now, used properly, that drive will elevate us and teach us to be nicer, kinder, to work more mitzvahs, to learn more, to grow more, 
as a Jew should. Sometimes that's subverted, and it's sort of like misdirected. And there's a sense, listen, that's okay for everybody else, but I need a house that's uh, a little bit nicer. I need carpet that's a little bit thicker. My car can't be last year's model. And there's a growth drive and a drive to be bigger and greater that can be subverted, that can be misdirected to physicality. And oftentimes I think that's what you see when Jews have to have the fanciest and the nicest. And it's not all Jews certainly, and it's not that that prevalent. But when you see it, I believe what you're looking at is a manifestation of a neshama that's desirous of growing and accomplishing, and that desire is being misdirected. And it's something that has a very great expense to it. Number one, it's an expense of time because money costs us the most precious resource we have. The single most precious resource we have is time. And for the vast majority of us, the only way we buy money is with time. And there's probably no more expensive resource in the world. And for that reason, it's it's something to be very wary of. Even if you're born so wealthy that you can't spend that money in your entire lifetime – Still, it's something to be very wary of because materialism is a focus. It'll ruin your kids. It'll ruin your own bias. It, it destroys everyone there. It becomes the focus. We live in the better house. We live in the fancy house. We're, the, we're better kind of people. What do you mean we're better? Oh, you mean you have finer midos? That means you're more involved in learning? No, it's just we're of a higher ilk. We go to this hotel for Pesach. We go to this place. We don't really associate with the regular people. It becomes arrogance. It becomes materialism. And it becomes something that destroys your, your desire for growth in Ruchnius. What this Rashi is cluing us into is there's a whole other part to it. When you become a consumer, you're destined to be miserable. Because no matter what you have, there's always more. No matter how much you have, they're different and new and others. And, and guess what? You can't buy it all. You can't house it all. You don't have enough space for it. And the minute you get it, there's something new and better and it's no longer good enough. And what the Torah is teaching us is that Hashem wants us to be happy. Don't desire meat if you can't afford it. Why? Because if you desire meat and you can't afford it, you're going to be unhappy. You're going to want and you can't have it, and that's a very uncomfortable position. And I believe the message for us in the 21st century is don't buy into consumerism because the minute you start seeing it and wanting it, you're guaranteed what you have isn't good enough. You have to train your eye to say what I have is wonderful. My Rebbe, the Shiva Zatzal, used to tell us all the time, you should say to yourself, what I have is remarkable. I remember when we first got a van, I said to my wife, we have to train ourselves. That green van, that's the best van. And wow. And this model. And this year, this is the best. And if you work on it and you have to train yourself, now you know that it's not the best in the world. And you know that there are finer cars. It doesn't matter. This is the best. This is the finest. I have the finest house. I have the finest wife. I have the finest children. I have the finest clothing. What I have is exactly what Hashem wants me to have. What I have is exactly what Hashem feels is right for me, and this is the best that's there. This is the best that's out there. It can't be better than this. If you work on that, obviously, you no longer pursue materialism, but the great Kiddush of this Rashi is if you do that, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. Ultimately, Hashem wants us to grow and accomplish, but again, part of that is Hashem is the mate. Hashem wants us to be happy in this world. When you train yourself to be satisfied with what you have, you're happy, if not, you're destined to be ever hungry, ever designed to fill appetites that you can't possibly fill.
Hashem grant us the wisdom and understanding to put this into practice.